0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest attention-seeking antic from Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, who has switched her party allegiance from Democrat to Independent, meaning that in order for the, Demo- in order for the Democrats to continue in the majority with their hard-fought 51-49 to 49 majority, they will have to take her wishes and whims into account. Joining us is Alejandra Gomez, executive director of Lucha, Living United for Change in Arizona, where her work focuses on immigration, workers' rights, living wages, and voter registration. We'll discuss cinema's deep unpopularity in Arizona with Democrats, independents, and Republicans, and whether this vain dilettante will run again in 2024 or cash in the favors she has done for wealthy corporate donors. Then we'll examine the bizarre coup attempt in Germany following Wednesday's arrest of 25 members of the Citizens of the Right cult, led by Prince Heinrich the 13th, which included a member of parliament from the far-right AFD party. Joining us from Berlin is Daniela Schwarzer, Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia of the Open Societies Foundations, a renowned expert in European affairs and transatlantic and international relations. She's an honorary professor of political science at the Free University in Berlin, and a visiting professor at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center. Previously, she was director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations and served on the executive team of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and we will discuss the spice what Putin wanted of Paul Whelan for an FSB Colonel Vadim Grasikov, who executed a Chechen exile in a Berlin public park and is serving a life sentence. Then finally, we'll assess what Biden can do to repair frayed ties with the labor movement after imposing a settlement on railway workers who were denied paid sick leave. Joining us is Stephen Greenhouse, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation who has previously was a reporter for the New York Times where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And we will discuss his article at the New Republic, How Biden Can Undo His Damage to Labor. And joining us now is Alejandra Gomez, who's executive director of Lucha, Living United for Change in Arizona, where her work focuses on immigration, workers' rights, living wages, and voter registration. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alejandra Gomez.
1: Thank you so much for having me in.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And, of course, uh, lucha in Spanish means fight or struggle. It's often associated with wrestling. So in terms of fighting for what you work for, which is immigration, workers' rights, living wages, and voter registration, Senator Sinema, who claims to work hard for Arizona, do you think she's worked hard for you and the causes that you work for?
1: Um. She has not worked hard for us. On the contrary, what she has demonstrated is that she's working for herself and that she is really more than anything, rather than representing the people, um, she's seeking the spotlight um, as evidenced by this latest call for attention in leaving the party and becoming an independent, betraying the voters that helped get her elected. Well,
0: I saw her on CNN when she made her announcement. She sort of has a kind of breezy self-righteousness about her. She talks in platitudes, but doesn't seem to have any gravitas in terms of backing up what she says. But when CNN's Jake Tapper asked her the key question, whether her move would change the balance of power in the Senate, She responded by saying, oh, that's kind of a D.C. thing to worry about. Well, for God's sake, it's not a D.C. thing. You've got over half the country voted for Democrats, and the Democrats just had this hard-won fight in Georgia. To get this majority, it's the key question out there, wouldn't you say?
1: You know, I think she has demonstrated how out of touch she is. Voters sent a very important message in this last election that they are done with politics without substance, and they are also done with the attacks to our democracy and done with the gridlock uh, that is keeping our communities from being able to see the issues that they most care about worked on at the national level. And so for her... To say that that's a D.C. thing um, really only just demonstrates, again, that really the only thing that she cares about is her own personal agenda, her own personal spotlight, and not the will of the voters who got her elected.
0: Well, her stance on the filibuster, which is why so many of the Biden administration's initiatives were killed by both her and Senator Manchin, is all about preserving the filibuster, which she argues brings about bipartisanship. When it does the opposite, it brings about gridlock. I mean, mm-hmm. the evidence is overwhelming. So is there any way to get through to her? Because if it's really a belief system, and, I, and I'm not sure that she believes anything except, as you say, uh, her own self-promotion and being in the spotlight and being this kind of peculiar narcissist, is there any evidence that she can be persuaded to deal with reality.
1: I think her record demonstrates to us that there is no persuading her beyond her personal interest. And really what she has shown us all very clearly, and we should believe her as she has shown us, that the only thing that she cares about is drawing attention to herself and not moving a people or voters agenda. So
0: in September, a poll by the AARP showed that just 37% of Arizona Democrats have a favorable opinion of her compared to 57% who have an unfavorable opinion. And then there's a more recent CES poll that has her approval rating at basically at 25% and a disapproval rating of 58%. And this is also not just with Democrats, this is with independents and Republicans. So is that why she's doing this, is that she's realized that she's probably going to get primaried and is figuring her best chances out to run as an independent?
1: You know, it's unclear whether she's going to run again or if this is really just a ploy and a call for attention. What I do think it is is she She knows that her political career is shattered. And, you know, we have yet to see whether she's willing to be the candidate that splits the ticket. And we're going to see if she decides uh, to run.
0: Well, it looks as if Ruben Gallego has plans to run. Uh, and there's also the possibility of Congressman Greg Stanton as well. So she must be aware of that.
1: Absolutely. We have been in conversation with Congressman Gallego, who has been, you know, a champion for the community, has, you know, worked with, for years, stood up against, you know, the attacks, both here in Arizona, to voters, and he stood with Proposition 308, he stood with, you know, organizations like ours, and the the choice is very clear, that we have champions in the community that are uh, willing to stand with voters, and currently we have someone that really just um, betrayed her voters uh, for her own attempt at resurrecting her political career.
0: Well, but in her obstruction so far to the Biden administration's initiatives, she, because of this filibuster, idea of preserving that and it's more important than getting things passed. One of the things that she blocked was the Voting Rights Act.
1: Mm -hmm. That's
0: right. So that must, that directly affects the work that you do, right?
1: That's absolutely correct. You know, Arizona saw over 200 bills this past year at the legislature attacking voting rights. We had a parade of horribles at the statewide candidate level, from Blake Masters to Kerry uh, Lake, and we were concerned because our our members, you know, our impacted communities, and Cinema not once stood with the Democratic Party um, to champion um, to support the candidates that are competent and ready to lead a people's agenda. Um, and that really just demonstrates that she's out there for herself, um, not standing with um, the candidates that our voters demonstrated are ready to move past. They see who is attacking their most um, core issues that matter to them. And front and center was protecting our democracy. And that is going to hurt cinema because time and again, she has shown that one, she does not champion um, protecting our democracy. But for us as an organization, we ran a minimum wage campaign in 2016 and won. And what we have seen is her antics, her curtsying and sending a thumbs down to all of the voters that are struggling right now. It's incredibly expensive with inflation, the rising cost of housing, And for her to send that message in such a a demeaning way to voters really just demonstrates the caliber uh, of person um, that she is and that she's not ready to govern and hasn't been ready to govern.
0: Yeah, that was a kind of Marie Antoinette moment, turning down the minimum wage vote or voting voting it down and doing a little curtsy. Um, mm-hmm. But when you say she's the cent- she wants to be the center of attention, which is clearly the case, she will be the center of attention because the Democrats are going to ha- literally have to get her vote on everything, aren't they?
1: You know, what we have seen uh, in this past election is that we saw Georgia pull through in such a big way. We saw Arizona pull through in such a big way. Nevada... Um, And we're incredibly proud of all of the voters and want to send so much um, gratitude for their participation. And while Democrats are going to have to, you know, figure out a way to work with this latest call for attention from Cinema's part, Democrats did an incredible amount um, with the slim majority that they had before. And I believe that Democrats will be able to do so much um with with this again a uh, slim majority
0: but once and- she de- once she declares herself now that she has an independent she says she's going to caucus with the democrats so that's gives you some sense of relief but on the other hand she doesn't even sit with the democrats most of the time she sits on the republican side of the aisle and she's voted against the democrats And i think she's voted with them 60 something percent She votes more than any other senator against the Democrats, or not with them, I guess is a better way to put it. So isn't it likely that she'll be more independent, uh, vote with them less, now that she's declared independent?
1: I'm in a wait-and-see moment with her. I'm going to see how she shows up. She's saying that she's going to vote with Democrats, as you just stated. She's, you know, voted down really important bills to the American people that were clearly bipartisan. As an example, the minimum wage was the top vote getter amongst um, the, your furthest Trump Republicans and your furthest left Democrats and moderates. And so to me, you know, I don't think that she's listening and she's demonstrated that she doesn't care. And I'm curious on how she's going to maneuver this next year in Washington because voters are also paying attention. Her approval rating is incredibly low, so there's a lot to be seen. But one thing that I will say is that she has proven to the nation that she is not the people's candidate.
0: So when you say that she'll split the Democratic vote, which is obvious, if Ruben Gallego runs as a Democrat and she runs as a independent in 2024, then logically she would be splitting the Democratic vote. But since she's so unpopular with the Democrats and also with Independents and Republicans, is it possible she could end up splitting the non-Democratic vote? In other words, what's left of the Independents and the Republicans?
1: You know, and there's another possibility that she will not run. So I think there's a lot to be seen I think she needs to make the decision whether she's going to run or not. And we have seen that she is definitely unpredictable. And so, yeah, we will see.
0: Well, if she doesn't run, that would probably be because she's been rewarded by all these lobbyists who's thrown money at her, right? That's right. I and mean, when you think about it, she stymied so many democratic initiatives, the most important of which was, would be to raise taxes on the super rich mm-hmm. and uh, particularly on those that get carried interest, which is what she opposed uh, in one of the, the big um, Build Back Better bills that Biden failed to get through because of her Mansion. So isn't it logical to assume that if you've made this massive gift to hedge fund managers and billionaires that they can make zillions more money because they don't pay taxes. Aren't they going to reward the one person who scuttled the attempt to make them pay more taxes?
1: Absolutely. Um, We have seen that she has cozied up to special interests, big pharma, cryptocurrency firms that are not doing well anymore. And she um, is now she went from, you know, having a everyday working american wage to now, you know, she's a millionaire. And that came from, you know, her doing the bidding of big pharma and so many other special interests that, you know, don't care about where the american people are right now in this difficult moment in time. You know, as we have seen the rising cost of even groceries. You know, we met with our members just before the election. We were doing listening sessions and everyday people were struggling and being able to buy groceries. You know, that it's a it's an appalling thing to have a legislator that would rather do the bidding of these corporations. Um, that would rather make it difficult for our fellow neighbors, um, everyday people, voters, to be able to access quality health care and medicine that should otherwise be affordable and accessible to make it now difficult for them to access, you know, these life-saving medicines.
0: So... Just in the last couple of minutes, Alejandro Gomez, when you say she's a millionaire, in the recess last year, she went off and interned at a winery, I believe, in California that belonged mm-hmm. to a wealthy donor. Mm-hmm. You say she, she's a millionaire now from what? From donations? From How did she become a millionaire that's serving the, in the u s
1: Yeah, that's the question at hand. I think it has been now from all of the favors that she has done for Big Pharma and all her special interest friends So she will be just fine when she decides to, you know, either run or not run, which I also think that, you know, this is a call for attention, but it's unclear whether she will run.
0: Well, Alejandro Gomez, I thank you for joining
1: us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Alejandro Gomez, who's the executive director of Lucha, Living United for Change in Arizona, where her work focuses on immigration, workers' rights, living wages, and voter registration. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the bizarre coup attempt in Germany, along with Putin's attempt at a spy swap of Paul Whelan for an FSB colonel, Vadim Krasikov, who executed a Chechen exile in a Berlin public park and is serving a life sentence. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Germany is Daniela Schwarzer, who's the Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia for the Open Society Foundations, a renowned expert in European affairs and transatlantic and international relations. She's an Honorary Professor of Political Science at the Free University in Berlin, and a visiting professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, Belfast Center. And previously, she was director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations and served on the executive team of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniela Schwarzer. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Wednesday, there was a massive police raids across Germany. Twenty-five people were arrested, including for plotting a coup against the German government the leader of the coup attempt apparently is, a, is somebody called Prince Heinrich the 13th. They also rolled up a former member of parliament for the Alternative for Deutschland AFD far-right anti-immigration party as well. So is this shaking the, the political foundations in the country or is this just being sort of written off as a bizarre group of 21,000 lunatics? Uh, we have them over here in Spain. so is it serious or farce?
2: In the beginning, it looked very serious, in particular also because German media uh, were reporting on this life uh, from the respective places all over Germany where the raids were conducted. But the more that is known about the group, the more that it, see, it seems like a pretty crazy group uh, bringing together a number of former soldiers, a judge, a member of parliament. So indeed serious people, however, with a pretty crazy plan. So I don't think Germany was ever uh, on the verge of a coup. But on the other hand, those were people ready uh, for violent action. So there was a true danger. And it's very good that this was discovered early.
0: But this group, the citizens of the Reich, in 2016, they killed a policeman in Bavaria. So, and apparently they've in these raids, they've recovered a lot of firearms. So to that extent, they seem dangerous, although there are only what twenty one thousand in the country?
2: Yeah, that is absolutely true. They are dangerous in terms of ready to use violence, ready to kill, however, not organised enough, so it's not that we are facing a major conspiracy that could lead to a toppling of the government that they intended and a coup d'etat. So I think the danger is not that much political, but indeed there's a danger of violence, of, of murder, which they have already done.
0: So were they planning anything similar to what happened here on January the 6th, the storming of the capital?
2: Well, obviously the images came up immediately in the minds of people. And it seemed that they were indeed thinking about accessing the parliament and the fact that one member of parliament uh, was on the group, uh, you know, with access to the buildings. That raises a whole lot of questions now about security measures in Parliament, also uh, security controls for members of Parliament. Uh, so there is there is indeed a serious debate. So consequences will surely be drawn, but we are very far from uh, a situation that resembles the one in Washington DC on November sixth.
0: This, obviously, this group has a broad kind of <laughs> encompassing a Prince Heinrich the Thirteenth, who wants to take the country back to the days of the Kaiser and AFD people who some accuse them of wanting to take the country back to the days of Hitler. So is it a combination of both?
2: Well, as much as we know about the people, it seems like, uh, yeah, very illusionary Ideas uh, to bring Germany to to back to the past. Uh, I think the the dangerous thing that we observe, and not only in this group, but but beyond, is that also in Germany now, as an effect of uh, probably the COVID times, also uh, external influence, Russian uh, disinformation, and the playing of social media. We see a you know a growing amount of conspiracy theory, a radicalization. A stronger readiness to resort to violence uh, for political causes. So there is indeed a discussion uh, underway, which for which the the recent uh, raid was only the crystallization point, but which can or has to, in fact, happen because uh, the the fact that we have such a strong presence of conspiracy theory in our democracy today. a Uh, rising far-right extremism, anti-Semitism that also surfaced since the COVID pandemic um, to a stronger degree. I think this all has to uh, lead to a very serious debate about the resilience of our democracy and what is happening in our society with, obviously, the double shock of of COVID, the ensuing economic crisis, and now the war uh, in Ukraine.
0: You could be talking about the United States, though, Daniela. I mean, in many ways, when we got these reports, it's, it's very familiar. The citizens of the Reich sound exactly like the sovereign citizen movement here in the United States. Yes, and we- that
2: was why that was why in Germany the images, you know, in people's minds of of the uh, storming of the Capitol on January sixth were immediately there, and the very weird, you know, appearances that were among the people who stormed the Capitol. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we have the same extent uh, of polarization, radicalization uh, in Germany as as uh, we can observe within the United States. But indeed, there is a lot of worry that we are going moving towards a situation where not only you have a radicalization politically and within society, but in fact, groups of citizens who think that Uh, violence, political violence, is a legitimate means to to take power, where the institutions of the state, where elections are no longer deemed legitimate, that is, of course, a huge danger to our democracy as well.
0: And there's some QAnon elements as well in the Citizens of the Reich, but there's also another group, I I take it even more fringy, and that is the Kingdom of Germany, led by King Peter. Is that sort of some weird kind of hippie operation? Or is that a part of this kind of atavistic idea of going back to the days of the Kaiser?
2: You know, some of the subgroups and some of the people may seem quite weird. And and I think in that case, this is so. However, I think we we shouldn't belittle uh, the underlying problem And that is that uh, a group of of citizens in this country thinks that it's the right thing to topple the government violently to storm maybe the parliamentary building uh, as has happened in the U.S. So even if it is a bunch of different groups and some of them may seem crazy, it is very important to to look at them very seriously. And the most important question is how could we get there and why doesn't our democracy actually offer the channels to voice discontent and to make people feel uh, that they can have a say. I think that's the question that should bug us more than, than the question of, we you know, how crazy are subgroups of, of this uh, broader network.
0: So, Daniela Schwarty, you mentioned Russian dis- disinformation influencing these movements. There's also a story that's just emerging now. There was a, obviously a spy swap here in the United States, Brittany Greiner, the basketball player for the Merchant of Death, Victor Boot and there's a lot of complaints over here, particularly from the right wing in the Republican Party saying that what a terrible deal it was, that, you know, a a black lesbian, I mean, this is the kind of dialogue that we're uh, hearing from the right, got exchanged for this arms dealer. But on the other hand, apparently in the negotiations, the US was talking with Germany because the Russians, or in particular Vladimir Putin, wanted a former FSB colonel in the spy swap, along with Paul Whelan, who's been held there unjustly for about three years. So the deal didn't go through, presumably, because there's no way in the world that the German government was going to give up a guy that has a life sentence because he brazenly executed a Chechen citizen of Georgia, this guy, Colonel Vadim Krasikov, in a public square. Then citizens chased him and he was arrested. And what I find shocking about it is that this is somebody that Putin wanted. I mean, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, but how does it strike you?
2: Yes, indeed. This is a a story which which had its uh, occurrences already, that Putin has demanded that he is is liberated and uh, sent to Russia, the German government has consistently said no. Indeed, that murder at the heart of Berlin, really in a in a park at the very city center, a guy, you know, was shooting someone at full day. So I mean, this was just such a scandal. And then when he was tracked down, it was apparent that this was a uh, a Russian agent who was deliberately killing. Uh, someone in Berlin, um, the Germans took a very strong and hard stance on this and said he will not be liberated. I can't tell you what is happening behind closed doors in negotiations maybe between the German and the US government to move that position. But so far, there has always been an outright no uh, to Putin's request to to get him back to Russia.
0: Well, what is the situation vis-a-vis Putin and Schultz? They had a conversation recently. What I took away from it was that there was a kind of reassurance from the German Chancellor that Putin wasn't going to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, but on the other hand, Putin's made it clear that he's in it for the long war. And then on top of that, just in the last couple of days, Putin has floated the possibility that Russia may abandon the no-first-use nuclear policy, and he's talking about the U.S. having the plans to have a counterforce strike, which Putin refers to as a disarming, disarming first strike where the United States, out of the blue, just suddenly fires hundreds of nuclear weapons at Russian targets to neutralize their submarines, bombers, and ICBMs, which, of course, would be a global catastrophe, and take away Russia's ability for a second strike. So he's going to put Russia on a nuclear posture based upon total paranoia.
2: Indeed, the rhetoric at least has escalated a lot over the past two days. And uh, the the threat of Russia, of course, has to be evaluated against what, what Putin said very recently. But But we also have to recognize that his current situation is such that he has lost territory in Ukraine. He doesn't have or seem to have a game plan how to how to move uh, back into lost territory or how to even defend what he still holds on Ukrainian territory. So for him, he is moving step by step closer to a defeat with conventional arms and the Ukrainian army backed by uh, the West uh, is is, uh, performing much better than than one would have thought. Um, So we are are right now in a phase of, of rhetorical escalation. Putin has upped the threat uh, after not only the U.S. Uh, had warned him that there would be a retaliation, but also China uh, had warned Putin that, uh, it, that Russia should not resort to nuclear arms use. So it's hard to say whether anything in his uh, actual strategy has changed. Um, there are there have been back and forth over the past month of the war, but it is true that the threat is now upped and that he has, in a way, changed the paradigm of, of a possible yeah use of nuclear w- weapons being possibly the first mover.
0: So in terms of Putin's strategy, which, I mean, a part of uh, this attempt to get this Russian FSB assassin, the bicycle assassin, as you referred to in Germany, freed in a swap with Paul Whelan, of course, was also a ploy to pit the United States against Germany and I mean, the blowing up the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines seem to be also a, a real signal to Germany. If you don't want our gas, you're never going to get it. And I guess Putin is counting on, and unfortunately, he seems to have an alliance with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates in terms of OPEC+. Plus. It seems that his strategy here is to make life as miserable for people in Germany through this winter in the hope that they will tire of this war, which he said will go on and maybe Putin is planning on an offensive in the spring. So what's your sense of whether or not there could be any success in, I mean, Putin was also, if you follow Russian media, he was also counting on the so-called red wave here in our recent midterm election, which didn't materialize, but they were really hoping in, in Russia that the Republicans would win and Kevin McCarthy, uh, the new leader of the House, would cut funds for Ukraine. So that's a pretty naked strategy on his part. How is it working in Germany in terms of undermining NATO solidarity?
2: The German government knows that this is going to be a long war and that Germany's support for Ukraine is, is essential, along with EU partners and, and NATO allies, of course. So uh, continued arms deliveries, um, sanctions on Russia, Um, and also financial support for Ukraine are are very much needed. And I, I see no signs that the German government or the German chancellor actually moves away from that position. However, indeed, Putin is trying to make the life miserable for Europeans, most notably, of course, for Ukrainians with the destruction of infrastructure, but also for neighboring countries such as the Republic of Moldova, that depends heavily from Uh, Electricity imports into Moldova from Ukraine, uh, which now has the double pressure of uh, problems with gas deliveries from Russia um, and no electricity from Ukraine because infrastructure has been destroyed. So Putin very tactically calculates where he can impose the biggest losses. And there's a lot of hardship, hardship, most of all in Ukraine. Um, because of the winter that's there, because of the fact that many people have to live without electricity, even without water, obviously without heating. So it is a very dire situation. And as I can tell you from Berlin, where I sit, uh, the city of Berlin is again preparing uh, big refugee camps to to take in thousands of people. So um, I suppose that we will indeed have a very hard winter, but I do not see at least German solidarity with Ukraine, Um, Fading, but Putin has the strategy to divide allies between the US and Europe, but also within Europe and not only fake news and disinformation are all around, but he also attacks critical infrastructure, there are a lot of um, uh, cyber attacks on on public institutions, but also on, on companies, so, you know, there is a broad feeling that we are under attack by Russia. Um, but I do not see the German government at this point leaving uh, the position of full support for Ukraine and trying to uphold the solidarity among Europeans and across the Atlantic.
0: So just in the last minute, Daniel Schwarzer, if the government is, is not going to be swayed, what about the German people? Are they going to stick with NATO?
2: at the moment support for all the measures that the government has taken in response to Russia's war in Ukraine is still pretty high even though citizens feel the high energy prices uh, they know that we have to save energy you know some buildings are simply colder than they usually are so people feel it day by day but opinion poll data suggests that there's still a strong sense of solidarity i can't say that this will never change but right now uh, thanks to the measures that the government takes to uh, sustained purchasing power of, of citizens. so there's you know, extra pay and 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 financial uh, support for those who earn little. Um, the, you know there are various measures in place to get people through this winter, which is in Germany warm but but very costly. Uh, prices are rising very quickly in particular for energy. Um, But right now it seems we will get through this winter all right. Uh, The big challenge will be that we, along with other Europeans, uh, need to sustain uh, the arms deliveries to Ukraine, the very clear messaging that the support of the political West is there. Um, Germany can play a role keeping Europe together and also in solidarity with the Ukrainian people, sustain financial aid, humanitarian aid, and also we all, Europeans, basically need to take in Ukrainians who have to flee the winter in their country, which is, of course, the worst thing that can happen, in particular to families who have to leave with their children in very dire circumstances.
0: Well, Daniela I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you very much, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Daniela Schwarzer, who's the Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia of the Open Society Foundations, a renowned expert in European affairs and transatlantic and international relations. She's an honorary professor of political science at the Free University in Berlin and a visiting professor at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center. And previously she was director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations and served on the executive team of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And she joined us from Berlin. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of what Biden can do to repair frayed ties with the labor movement after imposing a settlement on railway workers who were denied paid sick leave. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Greenhouse, who's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, who was previously a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor in the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he has an article, The New Republic, How Biden Can Undo His Damage to Labor. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Greenhouse.
3: Very good to be here, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And how much damage did he do to labor over the ending the rail strike and not delivering on seven days of paid sick leave for, I think, four of the 12 uh, unions involved that were uh, poised to go on strike?
3: Ian, that's a good question. It's really hard to know exactly how much he's damaged himself with labor. Certainly some rank and file rail workers and some rail unions complained. I think a lot of, you know, diehard lefties complained saying, you know, and, and these 500 labor historians wrote a letter complaining, criticizing him for blocking the strike. And there was widespread complaint that, you know, Joe Biden, who calls himself the most pro-union president ever, you know, disarm, took away the, the most powerful tool that workers have, that unions have, to push management to be more forthcoming in labor negotiations. Having said that, Ian, the president of the AFL CIO, Liz Schuler, you know, really didn't criticize Biden at all, says, you know, for it to be mad at anybody, we should be mad at the huge freight railroads, which are making record profits and didn't see fit to give their workers something as very, very basic as paid sick days. And, and, and as you said, you know, just four out of the twelve rail unions voted against the contract. That means, you know, eight of the twelve supported it. So, and and yes, of of the four that voted against it, they represented fifty five percent of the railway rail workers who'd be affected, one hundred fifteen thousand rail workers. So it's not like uh, nearly as bad as when Ronald Reagan um, fired eleven thousand three hundred air traffic controllers back in nineteen eighty one and shut down, decommissioned their union. This is, you know. Biden was really torn, and I think some union leaders were really torn. Um, Biden realized if, if there's a nationwide rail strike, that could really do serious damage to the economy. He was worried it would push um, you know, the fragile economy into recession. He, you know, His economic advisor said a lengthy strike could cause the loss of 765,000 jobs. That would be non union jobs and non-union jobs. And I think some union leaders feared that if there was a strike, it could, you know, the public could turn against the workers very quickly and that could really sour a lot of people on unions just when unions are doing very, very well and are, and, you know, are, are at their most popular uh, level since uh, 1965.
0: But Sherrod Brown, who's a very pro-Labour senator, he came to Biden's defence and Biden, of course, himself did defend his actions in regard to the sick leave issue by pointing out that the workers got, I think, a 42% raise over a number of years. But then he he went on to say that everybody should have sick leave. And he was standing next to Macron, the French president, and he gestured to the European reporters, you know, you guys in Europe know that it's it's taken for granted, right? Which shows you how backward we are. I mean, right. that,
3: that's that's the main point I made in, in my New Republic piece. I, I think it's totally understandable that he wanted to block the strike because the economic damage it could do to the nation, you know, would be maybe you know arguably much greater than you know what the rail workers might win in uh, in a two-day or two-week strike. And and I think where Biden really went wrong is that while push and this is the point of my new republic piece, is that Yes, he felt he needed to block a strike for the good of the nation's economy, but at the same time, he should have done a big favor for the rail workers and, did, you know, and delivered on the last remaining uh, big issue for them in, 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 in the contract talks. They wanted seven paid sick days a year, and the railroads did not uh, deliver that, and you know, you know, we are the only industrial nation in the world that doesn't guarantee workers paid sick days. And it's kind of crazy that a very wealthy industry like the railroads, which have you know, been enjoying record profits and really overworked their people and have, you know, in order to increase their profits, have cut their workforce by 30 percent over the past few years. So the workers who remain are hugely overstretched. They don't have enough time with their families. And it's crazy that these usually overstretched workers don't get paid sick days and sometimes can actually get fired when they take a day off from work. Uh, because they're sick. So I think Biden, in announcing that he wanted to block the strike, should have announced at the same time that he's issuing an executive order uh, that would require the rail companies to give paid sick days. President Obama, back in 2015, issued an executive order requiring most federal contractors to give seven paid sick days to their employees. But through uh, very expert lobbying, the railroads won an exemption from that. And in my New Republic article, I suggest that Biden just do to the railroads, to railroad workers, what Obama did for many, many work, other workers who work for federal contractors who work in, in, in you know, on military bases and cafeterias or work as security guards, um, you know, for, you know, for Congress or who, you know, uh, serve, serve meals for Congress. You know, there are millions of federal workers um and you know almost all of them enjoy paid sick days. Of workers for federal contractors, and I, you know, I, you know, I was. It's kind of crazy to me that railroad workers don't get paid sick days, considering how strenuous their jobs are.
0: Right, but the reason the jobs are so strenuous is that they've, as you point out, they've cut back 30% of the workforce. And the arguments that the that the railway companies were making is that you know we can't afford to lose any workers because we've cut it down to the bone. I mean, you can't have it both ways, surely.
3: Exactly. I mean, the rail, the railways have cut, you know, uh, they, and this thing called precision scheduling, like just in time inventory where they really cut, as you said, they cut their workforce to the bone. And they say, well, we can't afford to have, you know, 5% of people calling sick because, you know, we just don't have enough people. So the railroad should hire more people. And a lot of people have been quitting the railroads because they feel they've been treated really shabbily and then they don't get enough time off, they don't get enough time with their families. So if railroads paid better and treated their workers better and gave them ample ample time so they could balance work family stuff, many more people would be willing to work on the railroads. And then the railroads would say, oh yes, we can, it's not too much of a strain to give our workers paid sick days. So over the past 10 years or so, Ian, the railroads have, um, have spent $196 billion on stock buybacks and on dividends. So that comes to about 18 to $20 billion dollars a year. And the cost of giving seven paid sick days to the 115,000 freight rail workers would only be about $300 million a year. So $300 million is just a tiny fraction of $20 billion a year in profit. So certainly, certainly the railroads can afford it.
0: So on Friday, Senator Bernie Sanders, along with seventy other senators and representatives, sent a letter to President Biden, requesting that he require the rail companies to provide seven days of paid sick leave to their employees, a condition of their continuing to receive federal contracts. Is that going to work? It sounds like a pretty solid approach. The party felt, yeah.
3: You know, Bernie has been leading the fight on this. That you know, as soon as Biden announced that he was going to push push to block the rail strike, Bernie said, "I'm going to oppose blocking the rail strike unless we ensure we, the Senate, we Congress, ensure that these workers get paid sick days." And he pushed legislation uh, that would have required paid sick days, but no no surprise to your listeners, Ian, Republicans blocked that with a filibuster. Almost all Democrats voted for the paid sick days and almost all republicans voted against it so now that you know and i joke i was joking with some friends i think i I told them i think bernie and all these members of congress pushing for an executive order and paid sick days they read my new republic article and said well we really got to remember and push hard on that again um one possible snag ian is there you know um there's a 1938 law called like the Railway, railroad unemployment act which kind of governs Workers' compensation and sick leaves and illness pay for for railroad workers, and it kind of says that's the exclusive law governing workers' compensation and sick sick and illness pay for for rail workers. And you know the the federal courts have sometimes ruled against you know ruled against California and Washington State and Massachusetts State, which adopted you know paid sick days laws for all their workers, and the courts ruled that. Uh, no sorry states you can't enforce laws on paid sick days against the rail workers because of this nineteen thirty eight act but the nineteen thirty eight act really seems to apply to preempt state action it, it's not clear at all that it would prevent Biden from issuing an executive order but best of all, it' would be good if Congress could pass you know could could amend this uh, railway this railroad act and allow and require paid sick days it it you know it shouldn't be that hard it you know it's it just you know. You know, I was just giving a speech the other day in Toledo, Ohio, which is a big uh, rail city, rail terminal city, and uh, I was saying, you know, it's crazy. in The United States—we're the only advanced industrial nation that doesn't provide guaranteed paid sick days to workers. We're the only one that doesn't provide paid vacation to workers. We're the only one that doesn't provide paid uh, maternity leave, paid parental leave to workers—and there's something really broken. Uh, and, you know, it should be like a very basic thing for a civilized nation, for the legislators of a civilized nation, a wealthy nation, to vote to require that employers give paid sick days.
0: Well, but what about the leverage of federal contracts? I mean, they must move a lot of stuff for the military on the rails. I mean. Yeah, a-
3: no, the railroads definitely are federal contractors. So. I, I imagine right now that folks in the White House and the Labor Department and the Department of Transportation are examining, uh, you know, whether they can uh, legally uh, issue an executive order requiring paid sick days. And and you could bet your bottom dollar that the railroads will appeal it in court and they'll probably try to find some Trump judge in Texas or, or Mississippi who would overturn it. So I think the, uh, you know, the Biden administration wants to do its best to try to ensure that you know, it, it, it will be as legal as possible. There's another possibility, Ian, is that you know, Pete Buttigieg, is, as uh, transportation secretary, gets to uh, oversee safety regulations in the nation's railroads. And some people suggest this, and railroad union people suggested that he could declare that not to give your workers paid sick days Makes railroads unsafe because they're so exhausted because they go to work sick and that could, you know, endanger railroads. That could endanger freight. That could endanger, um, you know, people who use the rail. And that might be another uh, way that the Biden administration could require paid sick days. And maybe that would be less vulnerable to a uh, court challenge than an executive order would be.
0: But you could add to that the fact that the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Gives the Secretary of Labor the ability to impose safety standards on any business involved in interstate commerce. That is that is true,
3: um, but you know, it, uh, issuing a new regulation under OSHA often takes months, even years. you got to have have a comment period and assess the comments, and have a second comment period. You know, you know we saw the administration acts very slowly in that regard you know, with regard to requiring vaccines, you know, for, for all workers. So I think the best route would just be a straight executive order, uh, for federal contractors. Second, I think this, you know, it might be a good way, you know, if Buttigieg says, uh, that the railroads, uh, safety procedures are unsafe because they don't provide something as basic and necessary as paid sick days.
0: Well, the one of the, I think the biggest of the rail companies is BNSF. Is that right?
3: It's I think it's one of the two biggest. I can't yeah. swear it's the largest.
0: Right. And it's owned by Warren Buffett, Bershka Hathaway.
3: And you know, we you know, Warren Buffett, it, you know, while he's one of the world's richest men, often seems like a more enlightened capitalist than many other capitalists.
0: I was about so, to say that he's considered something of a liberal, isn't he? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I quoted him in my book saying, you know, yes, there was a class war going on, and we, you know, the 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 one percent, we, the upper class, are winning that war. So I, I'm kind of surprised that Buffett doesn't say, you know, it's wrong for our railroad not to provide paid sick days.
0: So has anybody uh, contacted him? Or?
3: I'm sure, you know, during the labor negotiations, a lot of people called out Warren Buffett on this and say. Warren you great big-hearted capitalist you know we want you to be big-hearted on this and require your management to give paid sick days but maybe he didn't want to overrule you know the people running you know the people who run the railroad day to day
0: well he also said at one point that we are in danger of becoming a plantation economy where the few white yeah. southern planters sit on the veranda drinking mint julep served by and I'm sure some African of the workers Americans in white uniforms, you know, and the yeah. rest of us are toiling in the lower forty. That I think is a pretty accurate image of this kind of plutocratic-controlled economy that we have.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure some of the rail workers feel like uh, field hands on the plantation who are being forced to do uh, whatever the overseer says. So, and it's, and it's, you know, I, I'm just like. I'm just amazed that the railroads are so reluctant and truculent about not giving paid sick days. It's just, and, and then I was speaking to someone in the afl who said, you know, the railroads have really been embarrassed, you know, by all this publicity about, you know, these big, wealthy, you know, railroads, railroad owners uh, that are making record profits. That you know, they have, you know, they have egg on their face now because they've been so tarred for, you know, refusing to give paid sick days. And maybe, you know, with the nation spotlight on them, they didn't want to be seen as backing down and uh, and caving in on paid sick days. But, you know, one AFLCO person said, told me he wouldn't be surprised if the individual companies, you know, in a month or two kind of, you know, approach their unions and say, you know, we took a big beating about paid sick days. You know, we don't want to look like the bad guys. We don't seem like seem like stingy old scrooges. So, yes, we will give you paid sick days. And, you know, it would be great if it comes to pass that way, but that might only be one or two companies, not the eight or ten major uh, freight rail companies.
0: So just in the last minute, what are the chances of Joe Biden fulfilling his promise where he wants all American workers to have at least seven days a year paid sick leave?
3: I wish I could. I think he will push for it, Ian. I wish could be more. I could be more optimistic because you know, there's this horrible thing called a filibuster. And um, and now the Republicans are going to control the House. And, you know, whenever the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or ALEC or the National Federation of Independent Business complain, hey, this thing the Democrats are proposing is a horrible employer mandate. It's going to raise our costs. And the Republicans line up almost universally against it. So I think that if Biden pushes for legislation to require paid sick days, you know, it's going to it won't get through the House under Kevin McCarthy or whoever the new House Speaker is, and it will be blocked by another Republican filibuster. I'm sorry to say, that's why I think Biden should certainly try to do it, do an executive order for the rail workers, even if he can't do it for all workers in the nation. I mean, for the rail workers, because the railroads are federal contractors, so he should try to apply it as broadly as possible for federal contractors, even if he himself is not empowered to do it for all workers even ones who do not work for federal contractors.
0: Well, Stephen Greenhouse, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: My pleasure, Ian. Always always nice to be be with you. Wish you a good holiday and a good weekend.
0: This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.